HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. One of the biggest things we see as the, a threat to soil health is erosion. And uh, there are lots of ways that both people at home as well as larger managers can fight erosion. So things like planting cover crops, not having our fields completely bare is one way we can really keep the soil intact. Even in our backyards, you know, thinking about things like what are we going to do with our leaves? Are we going to just remove all of those nutrients or are there ways that we can compost it to help kind of stimulate microbial growth and create really nice, rich soil um, as opposed to just kind of taking away all those nutrients from our systems? So I think that soil is a great uh, medium because we can work at really big scales, but we also as kind of an everyday person can, can do our part to help conserve soil. You just heard Jane Lucas, an assistant scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystems. She'll be speaking later on about soil carbon capture. Ground, mud, soil, dust, loam, regardless of what you call it, dirt is at the heart of our food system. It's a huge factor in bringing food onto our table. Yet we seem to treat dirt as a nuisance when it's on our clothes, our skin, our food. This week, we take a look at how we interact with the ground beneath our feet. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Dirt. It's so quintessential to the human experience that we describe feeling at peace as being grounded. And that makes sense. Dirt keeps us alive. Our food comes out of it, whether it be plants straight from the ground or through livestock grazing on it. But what if I told you that people all over the world consume the soil itself? Next up, Sarah Mathis digs deeper into this interesting phenomenon. Geophagy, or the practice of purposefully ingesting dirt on a regular basis, goes back millennia. As early as the 2nd century AD, 
Small discs of clay pressed and stamped with images called terracigelata were consumed for medicinal purposes on the Greek island of Lemnos. Colonials in 19th century Jamaica noted the locals' penchant for eating earth. And right now in the U.S., you can go online to buy, quote, novelty packets of white dirt from Georgia. So geophagy is found everywhere, but there are certain groups of people who are more likely to engage in it. So women more likely than men and pregnant women more likely than non-pregnant women. In fact, in some places, craving earth is a sign of being pregnant. And in some places, craving earth is a sign of being anemic. That was Dr. Sarah Young, professor of anthropology at Northwestern University and author of Craving Earth, Understanding Pika, The Urge to Eat Clay, Starch, Ice, and Chalk. I reached out to her to help me understand just why people across the world are eating dirt. Dr. Young first encountered geophagy as a young PhD student doing fieldwork in Zanzibar. One day I asked this woman, we'll call her Hadija, Hadija, what do you like to eat when you're pregnant? And, and she turned to me and in Swahili said, every day, twice a day, I take earth from the wall and I eat it. And then uh, Hadija like kind of handed me some earth and I tried it. This is what anthropologists do. They try things. And I tasted it, and I, I asked her why. <laughs> and then I spent the summer asking anybody who would listen to me why. Why, why does your wife do this? Ask the taxi drivers. Ask the like, men drinking coffee in the evening. And finally, someone turned to me. This was a wife of a traditional healer. And she looked at me with my clipboard. And I had a tape recorder at the time. That's how long ago this was. She said, you know, you're the scientist. Why don't you tell us? So Dr. Young set out on a quest to find out. And as she explained to me, there are three main hypotheses that have been proposed to explain this behavior. The first is that there's no good reason for it. It's not helping anyone in any way and might be the symptom of some sort of neurological issue caused by mineral deficiencies or some other unknown. This doesn't seem to fit the bill, though since you'd think these afflictions would affect people at similar rates, regardless of sex or age or pregnancy, and therefore everyone would be geophagists at equal rates. The second is that eating dirt is like nature's vitamin. People who may be deficient in some mineral like iron eat earth to get what they need. On the surface, this makes sense. It explains the correlation between geophagy and anemia, and pregnancy is a time when women have heightened nutritional needs, perhaps sending them seeking extra minerals. However, the minerals in the soil are not well absorbed by the body through digestion, and most soil cravings in pregnant women are reported early in the pregnancy, when nutritional needs are not very different from non-pregnant women. The third hypothesis is quite counterintuitive, but it seems like it's the most likely explanation, and that's that eating earth can be cleansing. That sounds weird, but if you think about um, a mud mask, you put a, a clay mask on your face and out come the impurities, you can think about geophagy as a mud mask for the gut, where what's happening is it's either shielding, it's kind of making a wall, binding with a mucin in your intestines, making a wall that prevents pathogens or other harmful chemicals from crossing into the bloodstream or it binds with those harmful pathogens itself. And this fits well with what we know about geophagy, because people don't seem to eat just any kind of dirt. 
Across cultures, the earth that's craved is frequently very fine and rich in clay. And clay in particular has been shown in studies to be ingested preferentially by various animals after exposure to toxins. In parrots, it bound toxins and effectively kept them out of the bloodstream. And the terra sigillata I mentioned earlier, they were mainly used to combat poisoning. But is eating dirt really good for you? At least one article I found suggested that pregnant women eating earth in Tanzania were exposing themselves to high metal levels. I would argue that it's very clear that it's very harmful to be eating clay if that clay is laden with lead, for example. Sometimes people enjoy glazed pottery and often that glaze can have lead. Um, it's very harmful to eat clay that is from a nuclear waste dump. It's also harmful to eat large amounts of clay, like a pound of clay, for all kinds of reasons, including but not limited to impaction of your gut. But small amounts of clay have been used as medicine since medicine was being written down 2,000 years ago. So maybe it can have some benefits with the right precautions. But remember that association with anemia? I mentioned how earth can bind pathogens and harmful chemicals. It could also bind helpful nutrients in your diet. And iron is a great example. So we know that some clays are good at binding iron, and therefore it can contribute to anemia. And anemia can have very serious consequences for pregnant women in particular. So if hemoglobin's coming up short, you are more breathless, you are weaker, and to add a, after a certain extent, your blood clots less easily. So labor is a, a very athletic event. And you also don't want to be someone who bleeds easily after you deliver the placenta. It's not uncommon for women who are anemic to die during labor. So there are definitely some serious health factors at play here. But I wondered whether we should only consider geophagy in these sort of strict biological terms. You can think about the behavior as being modified by cultural expectations. So if you grow up and your auntie and your mom is, is eating this stuff when they have an upset stomach or when they're pregnant, you're more likely to indulge yourself in that behavior. And if you grow up not knowing anyone who does it, you're much more likely to hide it or to substitute another substance for clay, something that's maybe more culturally acceptable. So consuming earth is a cultural act as well as an adaptive behavior. And it's important to recognize that because it hasn't always been examined in a culturally neutral way. According to Jacques Henry and Daniel Kring in their paper, Geophagy, an Anthropological Perspective, throughout history, colonists who encountered geophagy in the conquered land considered it a deviant appetite and evidence that the native people were uncivilized. We can still find elements of this colonial gaze today in the medical gaze. So it's important not to reduce geophagy down to some sort of eating disorder. And while I might not be ready to go searching for some clay to eat myself, if Hadija offered it, I don't think I'd say no. Consuming soil and clay on its own is one thing. But when it comes to preparing food we tend to think about cleaning dirt off of our produce beforehand. Food prep is something that can be passed down from generation to generation as children learn to cook from their parents. 
But that doesn't mean these practices are always consistent within families. Up next, Zoe Denkla chats with her grandfather about washing food. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I don't always wash my food. We're doing an episode all about dirt. So I wanted to see what the actual science was behind why we wash our food. Maybe I would even uncover a dirt debate within the scientific community and, you know, affirm my practices weren't totally wrong. I started doing some digging and there was no ambiguity. It was pretty straightforward. You should wash your food. I reached out to the biggest washer in my life to walk me through this widely agreed upon science. Does it make sense why I reached out to you? Sure. I'm sure. A, I'm a washer. <laughs> I'm a modest washer. By the way, that's my grandpa down. I would say you're pretty disciplined. Like if you see me take something out of the fridge and it hasn't been washed, you, you seem pretty upset. Well, yeah, I, I think you're taking you're taking the risk. I can't quantify what the risk is, but there's. A, I think it's an unnecessary risk. Well, my background is, you know, as a microbiologist, mm-hmm. and there's microbes all over the place, all around us. There's like a cloud of microbes that surround us. We have this microbiome that lives within us. He explained to me that we're exposed to bacteria all the time, and the ones on and in fresh food can be particularly harmful. From seed to supermarket, there are ample opportunities for pesky, even poisonous particles to strike. Contamination can start as early as cultivation. Non-organic produce is grown with pesticides, which are chemicals that fend off things like bugs, bacteria, and fungus. They keep the plants healthy, but are not so great for us. Chronic exposure can damage our nervous system, screw with our hormones, and has even been linked to causing cancer. So washing produce can take off up to 82% of these chemical residues left on produce. What if you only buy organic and your food doesn't contain these chemicals? What else on there could really be that bad? I was under the impression that, you know, a little bit of dirt is good for you. You know, if you talk about dirt in the soil, that's important for people when they're very young to go around and hang out and play in the dirt and so on, because they they end up building up immunity to things. A research scientist at the University of Chicago found that kids who played in dirt had a more robust immune system and were significantly less likely to develop respiratory illnesses. If dirt is so great for kids, what would be the harm in eating a bit? Yeah, that's good when you're young. When you get to be an adult and someone has gone to the bathroom or you picked your lettuce, that's a different situation. But what if it was like just pure dirt? You would never know. You would never know, right? What I didn't initially grasp was dirt's not the culprit here. As we learn from pesticides, washing off your food isn't simply about removing dirt. Organic food may not be grown with the same chemicals, but the human element in food production is universal. People pick your produce, sort it, transport it, and unload it. By the time you grab that apple from the grocery store, you can count on many other hands to have touched it before you. If someone along that chain was sick or didn't fully wash their hands, that apple could now have all sorts of unwanted bacteria that could make you sick. 
Food can be contaminated with a pathogenic bacteria, usually salmonella or E. coli, when we're talking about fresh fruits and vegetables. These can either excrete exotoxins or contain endotoxins. They can have like an exotoxin, which means they excrete the toxin. So if they happen to have excreted the toxin onto food, you get sick within just a few hours of it. If there's an endotoxin, the bacteria still has to multiply in your gut. You have a delayed time before you start feeling the food poisoning. These can cause nausea, fever, and in severe cases, sepsis and intestinal lesions. This can feel a little nerve-wracking, but there's no need to freak out. A study conducted by the University of Maine has a solution for us. They found that tap water effectively removes 98% of all microbes on fresh fruits and vegetables. So in conclusion, I think I'm going to start washing my food. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. Welcome back to Meet in Three. In the face of the climate crisis, the world is now banking on soil as its savior. The USDA is launching a carbon bank initiative, providing compensation to farmers who enact land practices, such as planting cover crops and practicing conservation tillage, to reduce erosion and keep carbon trapped in the land. Even companies in the private sector, like McDonald's and Nestle, are investing in carbon storage in an effort to boost their sustainability image. But while soil may seem like a promising player in the road to lessening our carbon footprint, cattle and their antibiotics are standing in the way. To learn more about this dilemma, Chapin Montague speaks with Jane Lucas, an assistant scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystems, who you heard from at the top of this episode. Soil is really an amazing part of the carbon cycle. It's actually kind of the biggest spot where we're storing carbon in terrestrial ecosystems. So I think we think a lot about trees when we think about carbon storage, but soil is actually the biggest carbon store in land. 
In a very basic sense, the way that soils are capable of carbon storage is they kind of take in dead plant material or necromass and they help out with the decomposition process. And so basically there's tons of organisms, but mainly microbial organisms are helping to digest and decompose these animal and plant inputs. And through those processes, carbon gets broken down from really complex molecules to more simple molecules. And then eventually it can get converted into microbial biomass, which allows it to kind of stick around in the soil. Inter-cattle antibiotics. Their sole job is to kill microbes. And they're so dedicated to their mission, they don't even realize when they've left their intended host. And they're everywhere. You may associate antibiotics with regulating human health, but about 80% of all antibiotics produced globally are intended for livestock. And we're seeing somewhat higher releases of carbon when these antibiotics come in. And what we are attributing that to is that the microbes that are able to survive and persist when they're introduced to these antibiotic compounds have to work really hard to, one, just live, but also fight off that antibiotic. And so a kind of way I think of it is you could either walk around a, a track or you could run around the track and you're going to do the same job in the end, but it takes a lot more work and you're going to breathe a lot more CO2 if you have to run around a track. But just as there's no singular solution for combating climate change, Jane emphasizes there's no single group to blame for this obstacle. I think farmers are working really hard to figure out how to sustainably maintain their livestock and their farms. And so the key to this research will be working with managers and people out in the field to see what's actually going to be sustainable and not just say, well, you can never use antibiotics again. And so can we find something that allows them still to keep their um, herds safe and able to maintain their production levels, but also mitigate kind of the long-term environmental impacts? Only time will tell how effective carbon soil storage initiatives will be. And Jane points out that no one effort will be the magic bullet that brings climate change to a halt. But it is reassuring knowing there are people like Jane and the farmers she works with who are determined to find solutions in order to clear the way for carbon soil storage to reach its maximum potential. The soil's microbial environment is a snapshot of the big picture of ecological balance. Evan Marks is a first-generation farmer and the founder of the Ecology Center in California's Orange County. The Ecology Center is a model of multi-generational farming that supports a 750-member CSA program, farm education programs, volunteers, and diverse conservation practices. Evan recently appeared on HRN's Fields, a podcast that tells the unfinished story of urban agriculture. He speaks with host Melissa Metric about how his work stands in opposition to extractive industrial agriculture that leads eaters to disassociate from the land. Yeah, you know, I grew up as a surfer and and didn't have any relationship to the land, uh, the, the, the physical soil, if you will. I didn't come from a farming family. I ended up in Latin America for about seven years designing large-scale agroforestry projects and really looking at how do we reclaim the degraded pasture of the tropics, which is meant to be rainforest. This might be like a basic question, but how does the Ecology Center connect ecology to food? 
It was literally one 20-acre field that was growing one or two varieties of vegetable at any one time for a wholesale market. Um, and it was all oriented away from nature um, in every every sense of, of, of the production. And so we designed our fields. Instead of one large field, there's 20 small fields. And they're all oriented towards maximum uh, sun and, 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 and wind flow at the right time. You know, 200 varieties of fruits, vegetables, and flowers that go straight to community. And so that ecology and diversity, that ecology in, in layout um, and balancing the perennials and the annuals, that ecology in our rotation and how we move the fields around and how we integrate our cover crops and when we integrate the milpa, which is our corn, bean, and squash and our cultural crops and how we grow our cash crops like our berries and where the, the vegetables flow in. My first thought knowing that here in California is just... Um, does this design reduce water usage or could you speak to the irrigation water usage? We just got a regenerative organic certification on the farm. And so we track the organic matter in the soil and obviously our water bill. We do try to grow things that use the least amount of water by and large. So we are in the business of growing high quality, diverse organic ingredients. And so we also do use a lot of water, so I won't. I won't. Not going to say like we're dry farming or we're, you know, we're we're not doing that. You know, we 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 overhead when we need to and get a cover crop in. We use drip everywhere else, like, but we um, we mulch deeply and but it, there's water being used for sure. Just the idea of growing a lot of agroforestry and perennial crops in general, those use less water, right? Oh yeah, okay. and especially our soil, we're in a in a floodplain. So this alluvial clay loam, this really thick, heavy soil. You can imagine they made the adobe out of the for the missions. You know, um, two miles up the road out of the soil. So it's heavy and thick, and it's filled with organic matter. So it's great fertility. And planting perennials in this soil is amazing because you know after a couple of years and a deep mulch and good compost application, it's like they don't need much. It really gets the imagination going to really picture the the farm integration into the land that you're describing and kind of viewing it as this holistic system. We seek to care for the land, we care for all people, and we share the surpluses that we have. And so I think that's really the, the call to action is that whether if you're a student, if you're a you know, you work at a coffee shop or whatever it is, like how do how do you take those values and bring them into your day? Fields has just kicked off their second season, so be sure to check out their upcoming episodes. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Andriana Chow, Zoe Denkla, Sarah Mathis, and Chapin Montague. Meet and 3 is produced by Katie Moseman-Wadler, Matt Patterson, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>